have found their way to episode 138. Me and my good friend Malcolm Wilkinson are going to discuss six satires. Some really high quality comedies are going to be put under the rank this episode, so uh, you have that to look forward to. I, as always, am your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, and as always, I must warn you that this show contains coarse language and spoilers for the movies being reviewed and ranked. Please check out the website at rankandreview.ca, and please send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review, and uh, do me a favor. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Welcome, Wilkinson. Welcome back to my messy basement. Oh, hello, Larry Parsons. <laughs> Thank you for the coffee. You're welcome. Um, we're here today to talk about satire. Well, six comedies, basically. Um, uh, you know, for the uninitiated out there, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a satire is a comedy that's just basically taking, putting something in the targets, <laughs> taking a stab at something. You know, it has uh, an axe to grind as much as it has a story to tell. Right. So, you know. Uh, Although there's a romantic subtext to a lot of these movies, they're none of them really would you call romantic movies. I wouldn't right? say any of those we're going to talk about are romantic. Uh, there, there's no rom-coms in the bunch. Uh, it's not about, you know, some guy trying to make it to graduation or some guy trying to, you know, like I say, get the girl or get the promotion. Stop the wedding and then he gets the girl at the end. No, this is sort of taking a snapshot of either uh, something that's popular in society or... Uh, a specific sort of uh, element of society that that think you know is worthy of lampooning and uh, it's that sort of jester thing where you can sort of talk truth to power because it's all under the guise of it's comedy it's fun what I like about my satire and my preference is that it has a little bit of teeth to it Mm -hmm. Um, so some of these have more teeth than others but uh, that's my approach that's where I come into this Uh, why did you want to do satire and uh, was there a particular movie on the list that jumped out at you or was this the genre you wanted to take Uh, well there were a couple I mean The Blazing Saddles and uh, Doctor Strangelove I mean I'd seen those movies long 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 time ago Um, so those were two when I saw the list I mean those were two that really jumped out at me Right. I mean I'd seen them a bunch of times so seeing them again was not was not a problem to me. It was always a pleasure to see them again. So yeah. I worry. I, I think that it's one of those things where the pendulum swings to the extreme left and to the extreme right. But kind of right now, I feel like we're in a, a, a climate where really, really 
tough satire is not a safe thing anymore. No. You can't really make a movie like Team America World Police or, or The Life of Brian. And well, not Team America was only, what, 12 years ago? Yeah. yeah. But still, I, like, I would be surprised to see a movie of that severity in the theaters right mm -hmm. now. The, the public seems to be really, really easy to bruise right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I sort of lean against this. Not that I want to offend anybody, but I think that creatively you should always be allowed to take the gloves off. And yep. it should be up to the audience whether or not you did it for the good cause. Was it a cheap laugh or was it a smart laugh? You know, right, right. And, I've, I've, I think the social media. I mean, I've, I've kind of jokingly said, I think two or three people get upset. They go on Twitter and then they just start an avalanche yeah. of people getting upset because of something that didn't, that didn't actually affect them at all. Or just false moral equivalencies or, or ridiculousness. This whole business with the Disney firing James Gunn, for instance, which is already kind of old news. But, like, yeah, he had a bunch of tweets that were pretty blue and, like, clearly tongue-in-cheek, clearly meant to be funny, but I can totally see why people would be offended by it. Well, he can't work for the institution, the family institution that is Walt Disney. Mm -hmm. Seriously? That's one of the most evil and corrupt corporations. Like, from a business standpoint, they are despicable. <laughs> they, think, well, they've made their entire fortune off of, you know things that are out of copyright and now have stymied copyright for decades because they want they want to retain ownership to Snow White and well, Cinderella. Wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't Walt Disney himself an anti-Semitic? Yeah, yeah, very. So. Well, I mean, I don't know all the history about it, but that's a very, a very common sort of thing that is mentioned. Anyway, I'm hoping that what's going to happen one of these days is that someone's going to put out a real ballsy, gutsy satire, and that's going to start the pendulum swinging back to the other extreme. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, it's strange days for things like South Park or things, you know, subversive comedy. Mm -hmm. So I'm very happy to, to wade into this <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I'm kind of tired of hearing the word sorry for everything that gets said. <laughs> or sorry, as it may say in Canada. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. Well, that's the thing. Well, we, we live in polite Canada, you know. And I'm, I'm guilty of being overly nice and apologizing when I don't need to. No, but... I just mean every everywhere. I mean, it's just people seem to be having to apologize for something that was might have been taken innocently 10 years ago. It comes to the point where it actually stops communication, where you're scared what to say to somebody or, mm -hmm. or you know, things that you, you, you would have said, like, and everybody would obviously dismiss as something. Oh, you just said that to be shocking and get a laugh, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, clearly you, 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 you meant to hurt somebody with that. You were out for blood. And uh, mm -hmm. I would say 99 times out of 100, it's just something that came out of somebody's mouth that was more funny in their head than it was out loud, right? Mm -hmm. right? And we have to make allowances for that. Mm -hmm. And we also have to make allowances for people to, like I say, take shots at, at things that might be sensitive. Right. You're allowed to make fun of religion. You're mm -hmm. allowed to make fun of, you know, politics. You're allowed to make fun of, you know, gender stereotypes. Yeah. Dare I say it, you're allowed to make fun of racial stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I think if you don't have that conversation, if you don't find the line between funny and offensive, then you're just not having the conversation. And that's not healthy. No. I mean, Sarah Silverman would be out of a job if, you know, if that was the case. It's got to be strange times for Sarah yeah. Silverman, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. if you make your, your living as a shock comic. Mm -hmm. You know? 
And it it puts me in a bad position too, because then I have to be like defensive of things that I hate. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't like redneck comedy. I'm not particularly a fan of the Andrew Dice Clay school of comedy. No, but I totally think they should be allowed to do it. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do you. I'm not going to buy a ticket for it. I might not understand it, but if you can make a living doing that, carry on. There you go. I'll just change the channel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, Sarah Silverman had one of the funny, a really funny joke. Um, you might, if you want to edit this out, sorry, but, <laughs> no, no. no, she had a funny joke was said, yeah, you know, I can understand when the doctor was born that, you know, he slapped me on the ass, but did he have to call me a fucking whore after? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, how dare she? Yeah, how dare she? <laughs> how dare she? All right. Well, uh, that's pretty good as far as an introduction for me. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, no, I think I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. We're going to talk about six satires, and we're going to go uh, backwards in time as we as we progress. We're going to start with Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. And he, he didn't he, he memorize that too, folks. <laughs> yes. We are going to talk about Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, starring the highly polarizing figure of Will Ferrell. We're going to talk about Mike Judge's Office Space. We're going to talk about uh, Airplane, a classic 80s uh, satire of 70s disaster movies. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles. And then from obscure filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About and Love the Bomb. Right. I think that was (laughs) Lee Beckman's favorite director, Kubrick. Uh, today, I think he would say either Scorsese or Carpenter, but mm-hmm. ask him two days from now and it'll be <laughs> something else. Yagshamash, my name is Borat. I'm a journalist for Kazakhstan. My government sent me to USNA to make a movie film. Please, you look. Hello, nice to meet you. I'm new in town. What? Where? I want to say Hello, my name is Borat. I'm uh, new in town. <laughs> Welcome to our country, okay? My name is Borat. Okay, okay, good, good. Well, I'm not used to that, but that's fine. If this car drives into a group of gypsies, will there be any damage to the car? It depends on how hard you hit them and all that. It's hard. Hard. Ladies and gentlemen, Borat, Sakia. Can I say we support your war of terror? Kazakhstan is a great... It's hard to uh, underplay the impact of your first experience of a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a ridiculous. I'm glad you say it instead of a movie. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there was a ridiculous amount of buzz around Borat, and uh, at the time, especially that this came out, my wife and I didn't get to go out to movies too much because we had these rugrats running around. They of were, course, yeah. <laughs> they were not as good as looking after themselves as they are today. So we didn't go out to theaters very often, and for whatever reason, we decided to take in Borat. There was just this all this talk about Sasha Baron Cohen is a really crazy comedy, mm-hmm. and we went in there fairly early, and it was a packed house, and the audience just roared like everybody was just hurting, and like <laughs> almost traumatized by the level of like sheer oh my god audacity of right. the movie. And we came out of that that theater just like our sides were hurting, and it was like crazy. And we were like, wow, I guess Borat actually lived up to the hype. That's amazing. And then I fast forward to about a year later, where I watched it on video. Uh, I think it was at my mom's place. And we watched it in stony silence. (laughs) Was that that like your silence too? Yes. 
Was uh, that I mean, because of the comfort level of everyone around, or you just I, I don't know. It, there, I think the uncomfortableness of the movie in the theater caused laughter, and I was so busy laughing that I didn't ask any questions of where mm-hmm. the laughter was coming from. Um, I'm kind of actually because of those two very drastically different <clears throat> experiences of the movie split right down the middle on Borat. Because I honestly think that some of it is absolutely hilarious. Mm -hmm. But I also think that some of it, and as much as I opened up this episode saying, oh, 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 sensitive feelings, feelings, some of it comes close to crossing the line, not because of the severity of the comedy, but of the fact that the people that he's interacting with aren't in on the joke. Right. Yeah, well, that actually makes it funny. I mean, he 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 had that... um that character just recently has a TV show Who is America? Yeah. Did you see that when he was in I've it? seen clips of it. I haven't seen the whole show. Well, there was there was an interview he did with a, a senator from Georgia or something like that or a congressman or whatever. Yeah. And he got him to do the most ridiculous things on camera, filmed that this guy just didn't know that it was Sasha Baron Cohen, just exploited him for the fool, the racist fool that he is. Yeah. And then he ended up resigning like about 10 days later. He was forced to resign. Because he was just completely shamed by it. And yeah. again, like he's taking, he's using comedy as a weapon here. And uh, if you're going after people in public positions and people of power, um, and people who don't know who you are, in a way, like I've split that way. I think, like I think that was kind of like almost an almost a novel sort of thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's almost like aggressive pop art journalism mm-hmm. in in a way, but it, if it had real world effects. Um, but I, I take less issue with that more issue with just people he's almost taking advantage of their willingness to put up with him because they think that he's just this nice man who's out of his element he's a fish out of water Mm. he's doing this because he's ignorant of our ways and they're very patient and tolerant of all of these terrible things that he does out of kindness and yet he's he's exploiting it to make them look ridiculous right right uh that i'm less comfortable with <laughs> right. I didn't. I didn't mind that factor. I mean, I'm just thinking when they were sitting around that house with um, all the people that were very, you know, religious and that, and the dinner table, and, and they were being very patient with them. And then towards the end, it was like, okay, you have to. Go, you have, have to, to go. go. But yeah. he, my conceit is that he was going to push it until they kicked him out. Oh yeah, of right? course. Like yeah. that. That was the whole gist of it. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, I think a similar complaint is made about the Bill Maher documentary sort of re- religious Religi- yeah. because uh, the targets that he put a lot of them were kind of soft targets it was kind of almost too easy mm-hmm. you go to a trailer park uh, church that, that, that does a sermon literally out of the back of a big truck mm-hmm. you know uh, and, and ask these you know tough erudite philosophical questions to people who have never begun to you know mm-hmm. begin to question it at all yeah they're going to look dumb right mm-hmm that doesn't mean that they're dumb. It just means that you're opening a door that they have no access to. They'd had no access to their entire life. Oh, of right? course, of course. So then it becomes an exploitation of their ignorance. And worse than that, we became, we, we were laughing at them. I'm more comfortable laughing with generally than at, but I understand satire, satire is, you know, it, 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 it has some points to make. I love, like, the sequence at the rodeo when he does that speech and tells them that he hopes that they find all of the terrorists and kill every one of them and, mm-hmm. their, and their, their children and their wives and like it just gets really fucking crazy yeah. and like the audience is clapping because at first rah-rah America but the darker it gets it's just like okay <laughs> yeah they don't know what to do <laughs> they don't know what to do because fundamentally they don't necessarily disagree with what he's saying but to hear it laid out like that 
it's appalling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I I have so much respect for Sasha Baron Cohen as a performer too. Mm-hmm. His ability to transform himself physically. He's an incredibly famous person and he can still do these hit pieces like you're talking about. Michael Moore can't do that anymore, right? He can't go storm up to some CEO with a microphone in his face and say, oh, who's this guy, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but Sasha Baron Cohen is such a chame- chameleon mm-hmm. that he can completely change his physical presence and his look so entirely that it... You know, as a fan of his, it takes me a while. It's holy shit, that's Sasha Banks. Well, the the thing the thing that I was talking about with that that congressman from the summertime was, I mean, I think he was playing a uh, former Taliban agent. Well, he kept denying that he was Taliban. He kept like misspeaking. Mm-hmm. I used to be in whatever it was. I used to be in the Taliban. I mean, I wasn't in the Taliban, and, but yeah. or whatever it was. But um, yeah, he can he can disguise himself very well. And it's, he did the allergy show on that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. And again, it could be a mood-specific thing. Like, the the very, very first thing we see when we see Kazakhstan, right? And he's got right out of the gate, my name is Borat, and his weird uh, competition with his neighbor, and the way he French kisses his sister to say hello. Well, there's the rom-com right there. <laughs> right? Uh, and but there's still weird things like the fact that in his bedroom there's a cow that's just standing <laughs> in the room, right? <laughs> like, like that's a stereotype. But is he making fun of our idea of what you know Central European villages are like? Mm-hmm. You know these places trapped in time, or is he making fun of them? I honestly don't know. I honestly I laughed, but I don't I know where his heart is. I I, I laugh at South Park when they make fun of Canadians. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to take it personally, and again, no. I don't like being offended on behalf of other people. But what I think is really fascinating on Borat is on a given day I will just laugh at that and not question it, and another day I'll laugh but kind of question like is that a is that a nice thing to be laughing at? I you think know? it's I think it's fine. I think you can laugh at that anytime. Well, and. Definitely, if you go in wanting to be offended, <laughs> you're going to be offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and in a way, for me, like I, I like to think I got a pretty thick skin. So if you if you puncture it, I kind of like, wow, high five, well played, sir. Yeah. <laughs> right? <clears throat> I would never tell anybody not to watch Borat. In fact, I think it's one of those things that you probably should watch. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that it it could really go either way. It's like for for the horror movies out there. It's like it's like the Blair Witch Project or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. People either fucking hate them or think that they're one of the best horror movies ever made. And I kind of feel like that's going to be the divide for most people on Borat. Right, right. What did you think of the? Because um, obviously they're doing a running on the bull spoof. The running of the Jew. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's so over the top ridiculous that I can't really be offended by it. It's so yeah. cartoonish. I also want to talk about sort of the boldness of the almost jackass level stunt work that happens here. <laughs> There's a fairly hard to forget scene where he and his uh, producer manager yeah. guy get into a fight and a chase, stark naked, yeah, through stark this hotel. Naked, yeah, yeah. And like, first of all, the fairly graphic physical contact yeah. <laughs> between the two yeah, men is, is like. I don't like to think that I, I get uncomfortable, but it, it did kind of make me uncomfortable. Yeah. But at the same time, impressed with both of those actors' willingness to go completely for it. Oh yeah, no, they went, they went, and and far. again, not trying to make themselves look. They don't look like handsome, svelte, you know, you know, guys that work out. These are like very, very, very normal looking people <laughs> running around stark naked. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just pure 
holy shit, they went there. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely gets a laugh. It absolutely gets a shock. But at mm -hmm. the same time, it's, it's, not, it's not exactly sharp or deep. No, it's not. You know, it's just like... Well, these are two guys who were mad at each other wrestling because he was, what was, he, was he was defacing himself to the Pam Anderson yeah. magazine or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Borat becomes obsessed with Pam Anderson yes. uh, and he believes that his wife has been killed. So he completely shifts the focus of the trip. Instead of going to New York, they have to go to Los Angeles so that he may claim mm -hmm. Pam Anderson, who must have been a really good sport. Apparently she was in on the joke. So uh, yeah. uh, a lot of the people that were there around her weren't, but they, they did let her know <laughs> that, yeah. that Sasha Baron Cohen was going to be getting kind of physical. With yeah. So, and again, way to be a good sport. And that's really funny. I guess, I'm not sure where I land on the, 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 the blurred line candid camera perspective. I get that you can get great results out of it and I get the truth to power thing, but I think it's a gray area. Mm -hmm. In the end, I laughed, but I felt guilty. <laughs> I didn't feel as guilty. I mean, I laughed in some parts. I mean, some parts I just didn't, like I said, the running of the Jew, I didn't really find. Maybe <laughs> just, that's just maybe ridiculous. That's, yeah, maybe that was the uncomfortable part. I don't know. I, I love his, his like hilarious, over-the-top, irrational terror. Of the Jewish people <laughs> when they realize that the bed and breakfast they had are run by Jews. Like, <laughs> the sheer naked terror on his face is itself hilarious. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, then we're sort of laughing at Borat's ignorance, but Borat's not real. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> um, yeah. He followed this up with, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, the. It's another sort of faux documentary thing where he's playing like a flamboyant homosexual Bruno. Bruno, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's sort of the same sort of uncomfortable level thing. But uh, in a way, it's more focused in that it's particularly it's really, really attacking people's feelings about heteronormalcy. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's really sort of mushing your nose in it. And in the way that that movie is kind of one note and repetitive, which would be a complaint about that, this one is kind of unfocused and it's just sort of moment to moment I, I don't feel like well it was a movie that was being discovered as it was made they got good yeah. material they found a way to put it in the movie and then they moved on to the next scene it almost plays as sketch comedy more than as a movie right right um, so yeah I guess maybe uh, Bruno is much more narratively successful and satirically successful but I think Borat's just a funnier movie <laughs> through and through yeah. As much as I say, like, depending on the day. I well, they, might, they might have expected more from Bruno because it was a follow-up. Right, right. Um, whereas Borat, that kind of came out, and this guy kind of came out of nowhere, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, the Ali G show was fairly well, popular that's, yeah, that's in the true, underground, yeah. but you wouldn't recognize this guy as Ali G, right? Like no. I said, so. Mad props to the movie. Uh, again, the problems that I have with it are largely mine. And in a way, that's what a good satirical movie should do. It should make me a little bit uncomfortable. I kind of feel like me being in no man's land in the middle put, makes me the exception. Most people I know either think Borat's hilarious or they think it's just awful. <laughs> uh, I think you should watch it and make up your own mind, which means this review's probably not been that helpful. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i kind of more, I mean, I'm not one way or the other extreme. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. But I, um, I'd probably be more, lean more toward liking it. Right. 
But some parts were, yeah, uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not really against the Canada camera thing. Right. I mean, especially when it comes to politicians yeah. or religious leaders, people in power that are. Trying if you're to, a public figure, you're a public figure. You know, your turn comes around, and mm-hmm. you, on part of you, you should maybe know that that's that's something that'll happen, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're just an average person, I don't know, I'm mixed on it. Yeah. But I did laugh. Yeah. Good enough. Yep. Good enough. There was a time when people believed everything they heard on TV. This was an age when only men were allowed to read the news. And one anchor man was more man than the rest. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy? Damn it! Who typed a question mark on the teleprompter? Hey, Garth, how's the divorce? Oh, not so good. I'll probably never see my kids. Fantastic. I'm not lonely. I'm beloved by everyone in San Diego. You're so wise. You're like a miniature Buddha covered in hair. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your passions? To be the first female anchor. And I'd like to be king of Australia. Seriously, you sound like an insane person. I just got a call from Network, and the decision has been passed down to make Veronica our co-anchor. No! 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 Don't get me wrong. I love the ladies, but they don't belong in the newsroom. It is Anchor Man, not Anchor Lady. I don't know what we're yelling about. What if just for tonight, we weren't co-workers, we were co-people. Oh, I'm storming your castle on my steed, milady. We should keep it relatively quiet around the station. Absolutely. I'd also like to share with you that we are currently dating and that she is quite a handful in the bedroom. Uh Uh-oh. of Columbus that hurts. So, Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy, I think hangs very strongly on your opinion of Will Ferrell. I understand that people tend to react fairly strongly to him. He's hard cheese. He's like Some people like think he's absolutely hilarious. Some people just do not vibe on him at all. Right. I think that Will Ferrell's real gift, I can't really compare him to John Cleese. I think John Cleese is just on another level, but he has something in common with John Cleese in that He's really good at keeping dignity on his face while he's doing something that is completely preposterous. Well, that's, and that's a good way of putting it. You know, like he plays so straight things that are so absolutely crazy that you, it, it, it gets me. Like it, 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 it'll sometimes get in. I don't love every Will Ferrell movie. I no, can't no. defend all of Will Ferrell's work, uh, but I warm to Anchorman. This one, it's funny, I'm talking about with Borat, how the first time I loved it, the second time I didn't know how to take it. Uh, the first time I watched Anchor Band, I was kind of disappointed, actually. I mean, like, I got that there was stuff that was funny in it, but, like, I didn't, I wasn't rolling in the aisles. But it's one of those weird movies that it kind of stuck in my brain. Every now and then, little things would sort of catch mm-hmm. in my brain. And then when I watched it again, I actually found it kind of funnier. And well, when I watched it again for this mo- podcast... I kind of found it funnier again. It it has this weird cumulative effect. Right, and if it pops up on TV and you're halfway through the film, it's halfway through, I mean, you 
kind of tend to stay on the channel, I find. Yeah. Yeah. It concerns itself with a 1970s local news team. From San Diego. From San Diego. And uh, they're, uh, you know, they're super macho dudes. And it's they, a boy school. They, they love the place. And Network has decided, you know, times are a change and we got to bring a girl on board. Not a woman, a girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, enter Christina Applegate. And uh, they would all uh, love to, you know, see her fail or some way undercut her success. Mm-hmm. But more than that, they would all love to sleep with her. Right. <laughs> They'll make an attempt. Um, what the movie, I think, is a comment on is just how much times have changed in a relatively short period of time like this movie is close enough set to our lifetime and yet it feels almost science fiction in the portrayal of the social norms right, of right. the world right well i think actually there's still probably a long way to go for oh it. absolutely is. yeah because <laughs> this this stuff's still happening but uh it's not celebrated. It, no, it's not, you no. know, like in the environment they're showing here, no one questions their behavior at any time. At any time. Well, it's, no, there's, I mean, when, when, uh, um, oh my God, the guy, who's their boss? Fred Willard. Fred Willard. I mean, he said, you know, we're bringing in someone and the four of them are in there with Fred Willard and they're making, you know, <laughs> jokes about women and all this and they're all laughing, including Fred Willard who just told them that, yeah. well, we're going to bring in this lady and, and then she walks by, and then it's like, yeah. Ron Burgundy falls completely in love with her, and uh, inexplicably, or I don't know that the movie really successfully tells us how, other than I guess chicks like guys who can play a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for some reason, she yeah. falls for him. Yeah. <laughs> he is physically and emotionally repellent in almost what every. That? What was that? The flute. The what? The what was the pan flute or the something jazz flute, flute? jazz flute yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, cameos all the by the way throughout this movie Fred Armisen is the weird non-specific uh, cultural waiter that he keeps going to yeah uh, Jack Black memorably kicks his dog off of a bridge yeah um, Seth Rogen plays like a, a almost not there part as the cameraman uh, oh, just right, in the yeah. background of mm-hmm. a couple of scenes really like uh, you can sort of see in the background of the movie like people yeah. who are going to blow up this is 2004 and mm-hmm. in the next 5 or 10 years a lot of the people that were bit players in this movie were front and center right so it's interesting to watch on that level but mainly I like it because it is funny and it is on point with its satire but I would like I would just make it a caution if you're not a fan of Will Ferrell this is not going to win you over (laughs) no it's not no the Academy was not calling him anytime soon (laughs) Um, and the, here's something that I would say that I'm not necessarily interested in. I mean, if he does it, great. But this transition that a lot of, you know, comedic actors, like Steve Carell, for instance, or the Jim Carrey's or the Robin Williams, you know, where they, they make a big career out of themselves as a comedic actor and then transition into serious work. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I think that I, I like Will Ferrell kind of where he is. I don't love all of the movies that he makes, but I like him as a gratuitous, over-the-top. Right sort of caricature mm. and like I say it's amazing that he can play both the clown and the straight man simultaneously yeah. I, that's a weird act mm-hmm. to pull off and uh, I think he does it I have in mind actually speaking of one of Will Ferrell's co-stars that he frequents with now is uh, John C. Riley. he's done it in reverse he was actually a serious actor right. now he just seems to be making a career out of Right. clowning around which is kind of a shame but at least good at it like well, he's, he's not half-assing it. it like no. I've, I've never felt in any movie even the bad movies he's been in that John C. Riley is half-assed anything no and he's one of the few you know regulars that we don't see in the cast here yeah 
I do love the news team. David Koechner, Paul Rudd, Steve Carell are really good comedic yeah. works around them. Um, Steve Carell playing a tricky role because uh, you could argue that they're making fun of people who are mentally ill, but in a weird way, there's something really lovable about Brick and likable oh, yeah, about course, Brick. Yeah. There's nothing mean about Brick, even when he's like doing the bad things to get... Corningstone. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just doing it because the other guys told him to. He has no real understanding no. of the stakes or what's <laughs> going on. Pants party. <laughs> Pants party. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I, and again, I think it's one of those things that if played badly, it could really go south. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, that weird palooka role in, uh, in, in Death to Smoochie where the guy's playing a boxer who's basically been beaten stupid. Mm -hmm. Again, th that, that shouldn't be funny, but the right actor playing it the right way can make that work yeah. as in a way that we're not laughing at him but with him you know with him yeah yeah that's the subtle difference it's tricky but mm. you got to get there um <laughs> david keckner is this roaring sexist alcoholic who is clearly in love with ron burgundy mm -hmm. like in a very more than friends kind of way oh, yeah. but in no way able to acknowledge it on a surface level it's all just way deep <laughs> and Paul almost Rudd, in an all yeah. non-sexual way yeah. <laughs> and Paul Rudd as the, the, the would-be ladies man of the group but we never see him have any real success with no. the ladies at all no. he fancies himself to be again uh, so it's sort of making fun of all these different aspects of sort of male ego and what they put out to the world maybe not necessarily being what they really are. Mm -hmm. There's nothing particularly authentic about any of the guys. They're kind of goofy and lovable, but they're, they're not real. They're all playing parts. The only real character that we're really given in the movie is uh, the character that uh, Christina Applegate plays, Veronica Corningstone. Corningstone, yes. <laughs> She's just motivated to be the best reporter she can be in this terrible man's world. And then they give her something like a... Oh, here, you're going to a cat fashion show yeah, or something. Yeah, cat fashion show and stuff like this. Like, completely not even sea stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, right. D material. Um, just isolated moments of the movie that I love. Like, the fact that the Will Ferrell character is so stupid that he will read whatever they put on the monitor. Oh, if someone accidentally yeah. puts a question mark at the end of the sentence, he will say, I am Ron Burgundy? Ron <laughs> Burgundy? <laughs> Like, just that as a comedic conceit, I think, is genius. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like, the movie largely works. Um, my friend Scott Lehman, friend of the show, actually quoted <laughs> this movie while giving a speech at his sister's wedding. Oh, really? <laughs> so, like, it's something that definitely sticks in people's minds. I know a lot of people were way too excited about Anchorman 2. I always know to sort of suspend my expectations when it comes to sequels. And I don't hate Ron Burgundy 2, but I think this is the Ron Burgundy movie to watch. Right. Well, I mean, this. I mean, it was also quite a few years later, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was late to the party. Mm -hmm. so. so, did you find the relationship credible? <laughs> or should we even bother asking that question? With with Ron Burgundy and Corningstone? I, I mean, it, I mean, I, I found it. I mean, once he felt threatened, I think I mean he tried to do everything to try and sabotage her, and that's why he would try and get everybody to try and pants party with her. Or, yeah. yeah, because I mean he wanted her out, and then she eventually got it in the end, or got him in the end by writing Making something on the teleprompter. Fuck you, San, Fuck Diego. You, San Diego. Which totally destroyed. I mean, people relied on the news back then. Ron Burgundy. Their local news, and Ron Burgundy was a hero to San Diego, and then, you know, you see all these people, like, upset and in tears, and 
I loved you, Ron Burgundy. I loved you, Ron Burgundy. I loved you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. And I also love, like, when Ron hits bottom, it's not like this anguish scene where we, like, want to look away. It's absolutely hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a scene where he's in a phone booth. Oh, yeah, that's how I was just thinking that. <laughs> just weeping. <laughs> And it's hilarious. It's it hilarious. And he's such an asshole and such a buffoon that we kind of revel in his, you know, suffering while at the same time wanting him to get his job back. Right, right. And, and I mean, also, it's a hot summer day in San Diego and he's drinking the milk. Oh, milk was a bad choice! <laughs> Just, again, isolated lines. Like, after the infamous uh, anchor team super fight between all of the celebrity news teams. And then mm-hmm. they just cut to, Wow. That escalated quickly, yeah. right? Like the most understated thing you could possibly... Rick killed a guy. <laughs> yep. Yes, he did. Where did you get a grenade, Brick? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yep. Uh, and that's what I think. Like, I could, I could put my, like storytelling hat on and say there's just no reason for her to fall in love with him it's a complete contrivance of the plot but I don't give a shit I really don't give a shit no he's done nothing but be terrible to her no he's not attractive and no he's not pleasant to be around no but she falls for him anyway Mm -hmm. as a kind of story and uh, she does feel like to some level she's sunk to their level in order to finally win and get her anchor seat she really genuinely fucked them all over in a way oh, that, yeah. you know so her her victory is bitter to her own taste mm-hmm. in that way but so. she did but she did get what she wanted she did get what she wanted but she's a better journalist than any of them too she takes her job seriously yeah. right so well, they, they, they're, they're less journalists the more celebrity yeah um, as, as far as making a lot of sense, no, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's consistently funny. It's consistently lively. Uh, I like it a lot. So, um, I think that if you haven't seen it, you know what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And if that sounds like something you would like, by all means. But like I said before, if you're not a Will Ferrell fan, this is not going to change your mind. Did you, did you think, no, I mean, it could go either way. Did you think in, in Anchorman 2 when they had the fight scene there? Right. And it was set in the early 80s or mid 80s, wherever it was set. And they had the fight scene, there were more cameos or whatever. Do you think there was more people wanting to get in on the, you know, to be seen? Or was it just because, like he said, wow, the news has really become saturated nowadays? <laughs> uh, I guess you could argue that they were making a, a, a statement on it. But to me, it's sort of the sequelitis thing where it worked in the first movie, let's do it again. And we'll just do it bigger and that will make it better in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I say do something new with the sequel, you know, take the characters that we're familiar with and make the unfamiliar story. Um, but again, I don't, I don't hate that movie either. I, yeah. I, it's fine. It just, by nature of it being a sequel, it tastes less fresh than this does right. to me. So. Who are part of a team. And remember, next Friday is Hawaiian Shirt Day. Okay, but I could set the building on fire. Who respect their boss. We need to talk about your flair. Well, I have 15... 15 pieces on 15 is the minimum brian for example has 37 pieces of flair on today (laughs) and a terrific smile and need to escape i don't like my job and i don't think i'm gonna go anymore one of these days i i i just i just kick this piece of i'm thinking now it might be more fun to just get fired and i've always wondered what that would take oh peter listen uh 
Well, it looks like you've been missing quite a bit of work lately. Well, I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. We're going to be getting rid of these people here. Mr. Samir. Okay, thank you. Not going to work here anymore anyway. <laughs> you haven't been showing up and you get to keep your job. Actually, I'm being promoted. Thank you, Bob. This is a... It suck! They're gonna throw you out on the street so that Bill Lumberg's stock will go up. Ooh. It's completely unfair. Inatech deserves to go down. We're just the guys to do it. Tell me about that virus you're always talking about. The one that could rip off the company for a bunch of money. I'm not going to do anything illegal, Peter. Illegal? Samir, this is America. So Mike Judge is weirdly, I mean, it's hard to call the man cursed. He's been an incredibly successful writer, comedian his entire life. But as far as his feature motion pictures, he's been weirdly cursed that uh, when they initially come out, they seem to make no splash at all. They, the critics are like, meh, and the audience tend not to show up. That was certainly the case for Office Space and also for Idiocracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, his recent film, Extract, came and went without any notice. So I assume in the next couple of years, people are going to rediscover it as a comedic genius movie, right? <laughs> and Office Space probably found a life of its own. Yeah. yeah, Office Space has probably grown more than any of his other films uh, as far as its reputation. I think what sunk it in the theater, honestly, is its R rating. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, Possibly, yeah. It's got an R rating because it's got a little bit of language. And one very brief, fairly innocent shot of nudity uh, in the film. But people knew the sensibility of Mike Judge, or else they thought they did. They're like, well, he does King of the Hill, and he did Beavis and Butthead. So it might be edgy, but it's not going to be super edgy. And no. we kind of. But I think what I like and surprises me about Office Space is that by Mike Judge standards, it actually does have quite an edge to it. It is not saying very nice things about the day-to-day -day life of, you know, the office cubicle, you know? No. <laughs> and the corporate enterprise that circles around it and what it does to people. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's almost sinister and negative. But the presentation is so light and so gentle and so warm that it's almost missable upon first view. <laughs> uh, I, I, I love how much teeth that office space has underneath all the smiles. They, they make the, well, the, the characters that work in the office are, are lovable. Yeah. Um, the the uh, character of, um, oh my gosh, now I'm forgetting his name. Uh, the, the boss. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, that's Gary Cole playing Bill Lumberg. Yeah, Lumberg, yeah. I mean, he just, he's just, he's just a jerk. Yeah. And he just, he just sort of, he's very dismissive towards them and just, I mean, every time, yeah. I mean, it's not it's in money or not the other. He's not paying attention to anything they say. He doesn't care about you, no. and he doesn't care enough to pretend that he cares about you, and he's not self-aware enough to recognize that that is transparent. Mm -hmm. And none of that's said in the movie. It's all done through the character and the performance. Right. And in a weird way, Lumberg, I mean, he's a villain to the piece, but in his heart is not full of hate or, or, or he's not an evil person in not his evil, head. No. He's just become this thing. There's almost no humanity left to him. This is what this world has shaped him into. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the interesting thing about it. Like, honestly, the, the main character, Ron Livingston, who just hates his life so much that after a triggering event at a hypnotherapist's office, suddenly has either a mental break or an epiphany or was magically cured by the hypnosis, he just is given the ability to not give a shit anymore. 
he doesn't care about the repercussions of his job. He doesn't care about the repercussions of his day-to-day life. And he's doing it all with a smile on his face, and he's sleeping through work, and he's ignoring his responsibilities. And he's moving up the ladder. And he's succeeding because of it. That's sort of a weird, sort of fantastical subversion of the plot. But what I found interesting is all of these things, if you remove the smile on his face, are symptoms of depression. Of depression? Yeah. Yeah. If you are living this life as described where you hate your your existence eight hours a day and the other eight hours of the day that you're not spending sleeping, you're sort of spending dreading (laughs) going back to the work, uh, then, you know, some of the real trigger signs that your depression is escalating is you're sleeping too much. You're denying responsibility. You're stopping showing up, showing up without giving excuse. It's not even calling in sick when you're not really sick. It's just getting to the point where you don't give a fuck enough to go to work anymore. Right. Right? Uh, But the movie's sort of playing it as, to him, it's a good thing. Slowly through the course of the movie, we find out it's a bad thing. He does need to take personal responsibility. And if he does break the law and he does fight back against the corporate evildoers, chances are he's going to lose. (laughs) Right? And all of that is called legitimately in the movie. And it never loses its step for a second of being charming, funny, and warm. Like I said, it's talking about utter darkness. And it's doing it so pleasantly. Well, three quarters it's, of it's almost a magic trick. I don't know how he did it, but three, it's great. Three quarters of the workforce probably lived like that. I know I mean, it. Yeah. I absolutely know it. Like, slice of life. I, I did uh, three summers of student work in a government facility working for SGI in various different places I'm certainly not going to name any names and I'm not trying to talk shit about these people I mean I made some good money while I worked there but they had a little office celebration in the corner of the room everybody huddled together to celebrate the 30th anniversary of this employee who had been there and we had cake and we had coffee and there was a polite round of applause and it was about the most fucking depressing thing I had ever witnessed in my life I worked with that guy on like I helped him doing his filing. I was just a student there, and he fucking hated it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hated it there, and thir- three decades and some cake and some coffee and this sort of polite, unenthusiastic round of applause. You yeah. know, if I ever thought that I could make my life in a cubicle, I I kind of knew at that moment. Well, no, I'll wait tables. I'll pump gas proudly into my 50s before I subject myself to 30 years of something that I fucking hate. Do you want to hear, I don't think they'll hear this in New York, but um, do you want to hear something really shitty about sort of office where I worked at a hotel and we were having a Christmas party and I won't say, I don't want to say the girl's name, but there were three girls. One girl was the main girl who was in charge of setting up the Christmas party. Now it always slows down after Christmas and that, the hotel industry and that. So the Christmas party was on a Friday. I think it was like the 21st or something like that, a few days before Christmas. And she's getting together, setting up the Christmas party, everything, getting all the decorations up in the business, in the banquet hall or whatever. And then um, she finds out at about, I don't know, 1 o'clock that she's one of the people that's going to be laid off. Wow. Oh, the 21st, the day of the Christmas party. And she asks, I guess, from what I heard, well, can I still come to the Christmas party now? Well, no, you don't work here anymore. That would not be appropriate. And she set up everything, and she had done it for a couple of years, and wow, and she got let go. The thing anyway, is, is that everybody who's worked a shitty job at a shitty place like that has a story like that, mm-hmm. and almost everybody who wasn't born wealthy has had a job like that at some point in their life. Right. And <clears throat> that is why office space is going to last. 
I mean, uh, I think that everybody can relate to having a job they don't like, and everybody can relate to the casual, indifferent corruption mm -hmm. of, of the, you know, the ruling class, for lack of a better word, right. or for the powers that be in your given institution. Mm -hmm. They have the power to take away your means of living for real reasons or pretend ones, mm -hmm. and the, the the rules that they make seem and sometimes are completely arbitrary, but you are helpless but to follow them. Mm -hmm. And it's a cruel position to put you in. Uh, as the Ron Livingston character says quite aptly in this movie, this is not what human beings were meant to do. We weren't meant to sit in a box and look at screens all day. That's not, that's not what we're supposed to be right. doing. Right. right. And it's obviously not what he's supposed to be doing. This is what this is like sort of with this Me Too movement nowadays. I mean, you, you hear a lot of these Hollywood actresses that are coming up in that. But they have means in that. A lot of the people that can't say anything, can't do anything, it's because they have them by the... Yeah. By the... Because if they make any noise, they can't pay rent. And if they can't pay rent, they have to move home. Right. And if they have to move home, they want to put a gun in their mouth. Yeah, because, I mean, the, cha the chambermaid at a hotel, I mean, she can't say anything. She'll get fired, and then who's going to believe her? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, dour, dour, and we need to be able to laugh at this. And Office Space mm -hmm. gives us that opportunity. Um Counterintuitive choices that work completely well for the movie. The gangster rap soundtrack. <laughs> you wouldn't think that mm. it would be appropriate stylistically, because this is a fairly white movie, I think we can say. Mm. Fair. <laughs> it's sort of talking about that weird corporate world possessed by the okie-dokie white folk, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, but it works for the Xerox. It scene. absolutely works. Uh, much like the they needed the R rating because if he was saying, oh gosh darn it to heck this stupid photocopier, mm -hmm. we would immediately call bullshit. Right. But him going from zero to absolutely furious with the photocopier is something we can all relate to. It might not be a photocopier, it might be a cash register or some tool mm -hmm. or some instrument that's just not doing what it's supposed right. to do. Uh, I, I do find it. It's the little shit that really triggers you, right? A major catastrophe happens and an eerie calm will fall over you because you have to deal with it. But you, you, you stub your toe on the edge of the desk mm -hmm. and just, fuck, right? Mm -hmm. Right away you get really angry. Yeah. So he, he, he wants to fight back and uh, through his friend, played by David Herman, who has the amusing name of Michael Bolton. In Michael the Bolton, yeah. <laughs> Uh, he realizes that they can put a bug into Just the software. Just call me Mike. <laughs> yeah, please don't call me Michael Bolton. He realizes he can put a bug in the software and by taking fractions of pennies at a time, cumulatively over a period of years, basically steal hundreds of thousands of dollars. Without anybody knowing. Without anybody noting. And no Which real, is the plan. That's the plan. And they don't imagine any real fingerprints being left behind. And the shittier and shittier as the days go by that they're being treated, the more this plan doesn't just seem right. It seems justified. Mm -hmm. And while they're doing it, you're on their side. But again, you look at it objectively. What are they doing, right? It's, they've become the corruption that they've so hated. They're just going to steal, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, even initially, before he has, when he finds out his buddies are being fired, when he's got this eerie calm, he says hello to the Bobs who have come to make layoffs, and he tells them, I hope your layoffs go great for you, right? His empathy doesn't extend beyond himself at that point. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's only when his personal buddies are on the chopping block that, that all of a sudden he realizes this is wrong, this right? This is wrong, yeah. It's a slow self-awareness that as much as we cheer for it, and the secret weapon of the movie might be Ron Livingston, because if played wrong, this character becomes unlikable at a certain point. But he has got a lot of inherent charm and relatability. I've always I'd say liked... more of relatability than charm. I yeah. don't know if I'd call him 
charm. But he makes bad decisions, but you understand where they're coming from. They're coming from a malicious place. They're coming from he's been hurting for a long time, mm-hmm. and he's finally just so upset that he's he's hurting back, yeah. and not really thinking that that's that's sort of self defeating. Right. Um, Even them driving to work, the opening scene. I mean, getting stuck in traffic. That's we've all been there as yeah. well. Yeah, and every morning. Right. Mm-hmm. Every morning, morning. coming in Monday, and, yeah, yeah, and how the little things become really uh, big things. The fact that the woman in the cubicle next to him has a really high pitched, cheery voice—it's mm-hmm. not her fault. She's not a bad person, but it would drive me goddamn crazy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> it's it's the little things, but there's a thousand of them, and they're every day. The door shocks him every time he touches the door handle. Right. One of his eight bosses tells him about a mistake he made a week ago. Every single day he comes in, he's, right? Like the I've t- still got the memo here. Yeah, TPS reports, right? Uh, it's not always a TPS report for you, but it will be something, and it will slowly chip away at you. This completely unimportant, seemingly pointless thing mm-hmm. just wears at your soul. Of course, days yeah. after days after days, and you can't not cheer for him, even though he's breaking the law, and even though this does somersaults to not absolve him but remove him from any ability of being punished he doesn't get to keep the money but he doesn't get get punished for it and the real goal was you hate your job get another one it might suck but if you hate your life that much every day get a different job Mm -hmm. you know and he Uh, did and he did and that was the big win of the movie you know he's not the new he doesn't run the place now he didn't find a way to be happy at the work he changed his life Mm mm-hmm so, uh, yeah, big fan of Office Space. I think that the cast is uniformly really strong. Uh, it's one of my favorite things I've seen Jennifer Aniston in. I really like her character in this movie. Yeah. I find her charming. The whole thing with her working at one of these spazzy restaurants where she has to have pizzazz or whatever pizzazz, that yeah. was on her body. And she that's the thing that finally makes her quit the job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the shitty customers. It's the fact that the she boss doesn't has have these... 37 pizzazz. Yeah, his, her boss has these weirdly strict random arbitrary rules that make no sense that's just random authority for the sake of authority mm-hmm. and that's the thing that says you know what i need to get a different better job right and uh there's going to be elements of your job that you're not going to like but uh you're gonna, gonna if be you're miserable your job yeah you if you're going to be miserable make a change that's the moral of the story and i think it's a very good one mm-hmm. office space isn't going anywhere i think it's going to age like wine mm-hmm. i would say yeah possibly yeah is there anything else you want to say about Office Space? Um, I, I think we're okay. I mean, I didn't love. I don't. I mean, I, obviously, you love it more than uh, I do. I don't think I loved it as much. Right. Um, I mean, I, I love the plight of um, <laughs> Stephen Root, who played Stephen Milton. Root. The whole thing actually comes from a series of short uh, cartoons called Milton. Yeah. And that's sort of the character who's been again so dehumanized by the place that at some point they don't even notice him. They make a plot point in the movie that he'd actually been laid off, but nobody pointed it out to him, and due to an error in. in clerical error or whatever he was continuing to get paid mm. so nobody really knew like who or what he was or what he was doing he was just this prop in yeah. the office basically mm-hmm. and yeah he's got that sort of I'm gonna burn down the building voice and yep. Stephen Root's always been an actor that I really liked he, I, I really believe that dude can do any part you oh he can but, but I mean he's a guy that also just he eventually just calmly snapped yeah and he did do it I mean he did burn down the place but I mean he just eventually lost it calmly yeah. lost it but he that's the thing. It's the slow erosion of your humanity. Milton could be kind of a lovable character, but I mean, he's constantly talking about threatening people. Like, mm-hmm. if you listen to what he's saying while he's mumbling, 
Mm-hmm. That man is broken. Mm-hmm. Oh, very. <laughs> and very it much. was the office space that did it. Mm-hmm. Never has the screen been so big. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. Leslie Nielsen. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Lloyd Bridges. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Well, I could make a cap, or a brooch, or a pterodactyl. Robert Stack. All right, Steve, let's face a few facts. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. Julie Haggerty. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Can you fly this plane and land it? Robert Hayes. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. All right, so uh, the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams, uh, they've got a whole series of films uh, behind them. Uh, one of my personal favorites from my youth is uh, Top or Top Secret. Top Secret, yeah. With Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. Always, always loved that movie. It was a, a legit pleasure at the time, maybe a guilty pleasure these days, but I still have a soft spot for it. Um, it's interesting when you talk about airplane, exclamation point, in that this is one of these movies that's basically a lampoon of other Hollywood movies. The big airport catastrophe movies of the 70s. Oh, yeah, all, the, uh, all these towering inferno. I think yeah. it was based on Zero Hour, actually. From They actually got the license from an actual movie, maybe you're right, Zero Hour, because they use a line from that movie because they thought it was just so hilarious. Mm-hmm. We need to find somebody who can fly this plane and who did not eat the fish. <laughs> That's a real line from a legit yeah. movie, right? That yeah. they transplanted into this one. Um, it's less biting as far as, you know, like the the teeth to the movie. It's a fairly soft subject, so the, oh, the humor course, yeah. is fairly soft. But it goes to the family guy school of like, let's throw as many jokes as we can at you in a shorter period of time not all of them will be great but enough of them will hit that you'll walk away happy well I think every scene has I mean this is one of these movies where every single scene has look a at laugh. the background read all of the signs <laughs> like people spent time to wedge in as many jokes yep. as they could into the movie mm-hmm. and in a way that's the real joy of it the other thing that I find interesting, and it's a weird another Family Guy comparison, is that they make a lot of direct references, not just to disaster movies, but to like famous films. Here to Eternity, Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, at the time I was watching this movie in 1980, that meant nothing to me. Right. It's sort of like the younger generation who watch Family Guy when they do a cutaway to some 80s cartoon or some reference to some commercial that aired in the 90s, right? Yeah. Most of them think, well, what weird random humor that is, mm-hmm. right? Right. The thing that I think gives Airplane its quality is that it didn't matter if I didn't understand those references. The scenes were still funny. Right. They were rolling around in the surf, a big wave hit them, and they were covered in goo and seaweed. Mm-hmm. Hardy har har har. Hardy har har. Uh, I didn't know it was Lancaster. Who cares car, that yeah. it was from here to eternity? Uh, the, the Saturday Night Fever dance scene. It's just an over-the-top dance scene. I, don't have, I didn't have to know that they were making fun of John Travolta. It's, mm-hmm. just, it, it's funny as it is. And every time I watch the movie, I find like a different aspect hits me. 
for whatever reason, when I was watching it for the podcast, it was the wordplay that was really getting to me. <laughs> like, uh, we need you in the cockpit. The cockpit? What is it? It's a small room at the front of the You're plane, right, right, but right. that's not important right now. Yeah. What's a hospital? <laughs> it's a big building with patients, but that's <laughs> not, not important, important right, right now. now. For some reason, that shit was killing me yeah. this time when I was watching the movie, and that's kind of the joy of it. Um, the story, if we can call it that, uh, uh, well, Ted Stryker is uh, trying to win back his lady love. Uh, she's a uh, stewardess on the plane. Uh, he gets on board, but he's got this tragic backstory where he'd led a, uh, an ill-fated mission during the war, and uh, he could never fly again, and he's been so fucked up by it that his career is over, and now his relationship is over. So mm-hmm. he's got to win back the girl, played by memorably by uh, Julie Haggerty. I had a bit of a crush on her when I was a kid from this movie for some reason. I just thought she was... She's this weird combination. She's got this sort of sweet, almost motherly voice, but mm-hmm. she's also got a real sexy quality to her as well mm-hmm. at times. I can, can see it, yeah. She can kind of turn it on when she wants to. Uh, and uh, I was six when I watched this movie. I probably didn't even understand why I was so fascinated by her. I think that the later you get into the Zucker Brothers' career, the less good their films tend to be. By the time you get to uh, the Jane Austen's Mafia and uh, that terrible American Carol uh, mm. there's just they, they kind of run out of steam but at this point the 80s and early 90s that era when they were doing the naked guns the top secrets the airplanes yeah. I think that they were doing some really good comedy and I like that it's almost universal comedy I think that almost anybody of any taste will find something to laugh at in this movie mm-hmm. the only gray well, it's area it's not offensive it's not it, going to well I was about to say the only gray area is because of the time it was made some people might choose to be offended by certain things. I don't think there's anything malicious about the jibe talk joke, you know, mm. or the people lining up to beat a hysterical woman. No. <laughs> you know, I think that's funny, but I can understand somebody on the wrong day deciding to get, you know, wow. uh, put their nose up at it. But again, if you want to fight this movie, you'll win, right? It's mm. airplane. It's yeah. not smart. It's stupid. It wears its stupid on its sleeve, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Bridges is the air traffic, the, 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 uh, air traffic controller. Picked <laughs> the wrong day to stop sniffing glue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert Hayes, uh, no, no, Robert Hayes plays Striker, sorry, uh, Robert Stack. Robert Stack. Yeah, a lot of people of our generation knew him as the host of Unsolved Mystery, mm-hmm. but he's like this classic actor. Yeah. And uh, he's sort of uh, also doing the same thing that Leslie Nielsen does and delivering all of his lines absolutely stony straight no oh, exactly. matter how ridiculous they are well all, all those older actors well except not so much lloyd bridges because i mean he's hanging upside down after he's <laughs> snorted a bunch of glue but leslie nielsen robert stack and uh peter graves who's the pilot i yeah. mean they just play completely all these old television acts they just play completely straight and that's what makes it funny yeah, that whole bit with Peter Graves hitting on that little kid was kind of dark. Well, that's a bit dark, yeah. <laughs> Undeniably, like, funny in an uncomfortable way, mm-hmm. but, like... <laughs> you ever seen Gladiator movies? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not cool, but it no. did make me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> There's darkness to humor. Uh, I remember when I was a little kid, the, like I thought my dad was going to have an asthma attack. There's a scene where the, the one of the stewardesses is playing the guitar to entertain the sick little girl. Mm-hmm. And when she swings the guitar, she knocks the IV out of the right, kid's right, arm. Right, yeah. And as everybody's having this lovely sing-along, this little kid is slowly dying in mm-hmm. the background. 
hilarious. It is hilarious, yeah. It is. It's absolutely hilarious. Do not fight this movie, and you're going to have a lot of fun with it. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Leslie Nielsen. This was the movie that turned Leslie Nielsen from character actor, serious actor, to Leslie Nielsen, comedic genius. Right, exactly. It's funny in that I think it's true what we're saying is he's not doing a, a lot different than anybody else was in that. But I think it was because people had always taken Leslie Nielsen relatively seriously mm -hmm. in the past that it was such a warm, welcome surprise. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm dead serious. And don't call me Shirley. And don't call me Shirley. This was the day before gag reels, but I bet you if they had a gag reel for, for Airplane, it would be longer than the movie itself. Keeping a straight face could not have always been easy. Oh, no. No, no. Have you ever seen the? He did a TV show right. At, it was based on Naked Gun movies. Were based Police on Squad. Police Squad. Yeah. yeah, those were funny. I mean, it was only like a summer filler, I think, but there were only six episodes. But those were hilarious. Yeah, underwatched but appreciated now yeah. more than at the time. Oh, yeah. And at least they gave us the Naked Gun movies, or at least the first two Naked Gun movies. I wasn't as big on the third Naked Gun movie, but uh, to each their own. Mm -hmm. um, there's some blue humor to it, like we've talked about. I, I remember uh, not understanding the humor about the automatic pilot when I was a kid. Oh, okay. It was like this inflatable pilot that yeah. shoots up and like this balloon was driving the plane, mm -hmm. and it started to deflate, and she had to... Pump, it back pump up. air back into him through a little valve right below his belt. That was mm -hmm. completely lost on me as a yeah. kid. And then after when he's filled up again, Julie Haggerty is like having this slow cigarette smoke after him. It's mm -hmm. so absurd. Uh, Otto, the co-pilot, actually is credited as himself in the credits. Yes, fact. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the other one of the other people that we haven't talked about was one of the grounds control people. Was um. I can't remember his name. The very over-the-top flamboyant fellow. Johnny or, or John Stephen Stucker. Oh, sorry, I've got this list in front of me. But yeah, that sort of flamboyantly uh, gay character mm -hmm. who always yeah. had the one-liners that sing in the background. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. He just pops up, says one line, and he's gone for like five or six minutes. And he I comes believe back. that's Stephen Stucker here. He doesn't have a picture next to his reference, so let's assume that's right. That's his, that's his name. But what's the, what's no, the character? No, that's the actor, the Johnny Henshaw Jacobs. Yeah. Johnny, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, mm -hmm. that's him. Uh, also, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> yeah, Kareem, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Roger Murdoch. And then there's, of course, Captain Over and Captain Under. <laughs> and mm -hmm. All of this delicious wordplay. Right. <laughs> uh, I also get a kick out of how everybody hates Stryker's backstory. He goes through a series of people he sits next to where he tells them this tragic backstory and mm -hmm. all of them end up taking their own lives right. because they just can't stand. And it's also, I think, a statement to how clumsily exposition is handled in movies. We all know that this scene needs to happen, so now we sit through it, mm -hmm. right? So it's a subtle comment on it. I mean, I wouldn't overly accuse this movie of being the sharpest of satires, but no. I mean, they're making fun of Hollywood, so they're kind of making fun of something that is stupid. <laughs> they're making fun of all these films that they made and took so seriously and they tried to make money from. Of all these movies that we talk about, clearly I think this is the softest target that has been taken. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Hollywood's, you know, softening of real tragic situations for entertainment. Yes, mm -hmm. I, 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 I get it. But thank you for existing, Airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, also, special mention to Airplane 2, the sequel. It's not a lot different to this, but they just sort of set it in, state, in space. And right. uh, we have Bill Shatner mm -hmm. as the guy calling the shots from the ground. 
Right. Uh, and I, uh, at least when I was a kid, maybe I'd say differently if I rewatched it today. As a kid, I liked it at least as much or more than this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. well, if you saw Star Trek reruns or something, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think this movie is review proof. Like I said earlier, I think if anybody will find something to laugh at it, you might not think it's as hilarious as we do. Again, it's aged maybe not as gracefully as we would like, but it's harmless fun. Oh, I think people would laugh at anything that they see in this film. I mean, there's 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 something for everything. There's a scene. There's something funny in every scene. Yeah. I find whether it's the girl being you know suffocating to death, lady being slapped, the the uh, you know there's a lot. There's a lot. Peter Gray's creepy pilot <laughs> pedophile. The point is, is that it's a, a fun, funny movie, and if you haven't seen it, you probably should. Right. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> of course, you should see it. Uh, hello, handsome. Is that a ten-gallon hat? So just sign this, sir, uh, right here. Okay, give us a hand here. All right, sir. Work, 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 work. <laughs> The heroic sheriff rallies his citizens in the wildest finish the West has ever seen or the movies have ever shown. Oh! 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 Have you ever seen such cruelty? Ever heard of Mel Brooks? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Obscure filmmaker Mel Brooks. Um, he's an he's an amazing talent. I mean that that, that, Very that goes so. without saying. I mm-hmm. mean uh, from his just the movies that he's produced, which are really interesting, like The Elephant Man. Yeah, he produced The Elephant Man. Yeah. <laughs> very strange. The Fly, the Jeff Goldblum Fly. He produced. He produced that. Yeah. Oh, like, I didn't know that. Very strange, interesting, diverse production career beyond his films, which are specifically comedic. I think the one thing that uh, Mel Brooks made happen with the the Zucker brothers is that I think the later into his career, the less funny the movies start to get to me in the little ways. Like with Mel Brooks, uh, with Mel Brooks yes, as well. Yes. That's just how I feel. Like Dracula Dead and Loving It didn't do that much for me. Life mm-hmm. Stinks didn't do that much for mm-hmm. me. Life Stinks so. <laughs> Robin Hood wasn't. Robin Hood it. has its moments, but I mean, for a Mel Brooks joint, mm-hmm. right? But. I think that it is Young Frankenstein, The Producers, and this movie, Blazing Saddles, that makes Mel Brooks, Mel motherfucking Brooks. (laughs) Um, It's also interesting because this was a fairly tough, subversive movie for the day it came out. But it's funny how it seems both tougher and softer today. Some stuff in this movie that was controversial at the time, nothing today. Some of the stuff that was less controversial at the time is shocking mm-hmm. today. I, I, I didn't realize how uncomfortable I was made by the word nigger. The N word mm-hmm. is thrown around a lot in this movie. And uh, it, it, it really did. It, there's this scene where the, the sheriff, Cleavon Little, stops this nice lady walking down the street, tips his hat and says, Well, good day, lady. Mm-hmm. And she responds... Fuck you, Nick, yeah. <laughs> to his face. And it's like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. But I love how they did not pussyfoot around the races. Well, and then, well, then even after that, when she apologizes to him later, she says, well, here's an apple pie. So oh, sorry about the F you. I can't yeah. say it, but uh, sorry about the F word. You know, and, and then... But, so I know you'll okay. be nice enough to not tell anybody that I spoke to you in this way. Basically, of course, man. Yeah. Nobody will know that you were nice to the black sheriff. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah, edgy, subversive throughout. Basically, uh, a greedy business corporate dude, uh, Harvey Corman, wants to take possession of this town because it's going to become uh, a, an important way station along the the, the train uh, tracks. And uh, they want to put a, they want to put a railway through. They want to put a railway through there. The and he's going to make a ton of money. You got to move these people. So uh, he's got a bunch of bandits that are going to scare the town away, and he's going to put this incompetent black man in charge. So they'll have no way. To protect themselves. Mm-hmm. But of course, Mr. Little uh, turns out to be smarter than any ten of the people around him mm-hmm. <laughs> and is ten steps ahead of everybody at, at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing, like at the time, people were shocked was like the farting scene. There's a scene with a bunch oh, of yeah. cowboys farting, and we'd never heard that. Oh my god, mm-hmm. how dare they! Yeah. And that just seems like childish and whatever. It's like the easiest joke in the movie yeah, now, yeah. right? To me, it's the, the the strange politics and the interesting, edgy filmmaking. There's a lot of fourth wall breaks. The third act of this movie is like narratively disastrous, but comedically just amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's a crazy, crazy movie, and it is still funny today. Uh, and for a movie made in 1974 to still have this much teeth and this much laughs, well, I very mean, much. <laughs> bravo across the board. And again, they're still making fun of Hollywood themselves, yeah. especially towards the end. If you're going to be triggered by racism or white guilt, well, that's too bad, because <laughs> that's just too bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a movie that has uh, Richard Pryor as one of the credited screenplay writers, mm-hmm. and I think that's a he lot. Was, he was supposed to play... Um, Little, yeah, yeah. The, the role that Cleveland Little played. Um, yeah. I think that, that, that that's where some of the sharper edge might have come from. I mean, obviously, don't know who wrote what joke, but Pryor was a sharp, sharp guy. And yeah. he had no problem, you know, making people a little bit uncomfortable with his right. humor. Right. And uh, I, there's, this, there's a line given by Gene Wilder about halfway through the movie. And it's not really in defense of everyone else's behavior, but it's just something he's trying to comfort Bart, who's been so put upon by these people. You know, like, you're dealing with this, you know, the rough building blocks, salt of America, you know, morons. morons. <laughs> and then Cleveland Little now. I love the blunt, undeniable honesty of that line. Yeah. It's funny, mm-hmm. but it's fucking true. Mm-hmm. At the, especially at the time that they were talking about the average level of intelligence or empathy or anything that was going on. With it. it was basically day-to-day survival. Everybody was as much an enemy as a friend. And if there was a lower class to be put upon, then you could look down on bully for you. Mm-hmm. This is an environment where being a proud racist had no social mm-hmm. ramifications at all. Mm-hmm. This is an environment, you know, where public hangings were entertainment. This mm-hmm. is an environment where all sorts of what we would call social ills were embraced fully. Right. And it's always painted in this cookie cutter, aw shucks. Wasn't it better back then? No. No, it was not. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> no it was not. Kind of speaks to what's going on today. And it's still completely of... relevant today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. completely relevant today. It starts off with a chain gang, or not, no, they're not a chain gang, they're just, they're building this, this railroad, but the, the ground's starting to look a little soft, so they send a couple of the, the colored fellows ahead, mm-hmm. and uh, once they get stuck in the quicksand, the big discussion becomes, how are we going to get that uh, equipment out of the, the yeah. pit? No, no, no concession or talk about saving the men at all. Nope. 
no. hilarious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and again, we are always asked to be on the side of the... The, the movie's punching up, right? <laughs> it's always making fun of the authorities. It's always making fun of, you know, you know the people in position of power. Yeah. Uh, and Harvey Corman plays position of power too, <laughs> wonderfully. Even at the end, even towards the end there, he insisted he was going to grab an Oscar. No, he's asking for it. Yeah. He's on talking about it <laughs> actively in the movie. Mm-hmm. And again, the same thing with the character that the Mel Brooks plays himself mm-hmm. he's somehow in this position of power but he's an idiot oh, he is completely incompetent he's, he's a figurehead he's not he's not calling any of the shots he was born to the right family at the right time and somehow inherited the right position but he's not top dog because he's the smartest or you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's completely circumstance yes right yes. just like the the black characters aren't downtrodden and bad people it's just that's the position they've been asked and forced to play by right. society mm-hmm. and the fact that Mel Brooks was calling this all out in, in the air remember in 1974 the big popcorn fair to go to a lot of times people the westerns were starting to die out but people were still paying to see a Clint Eastwood spaghetti western or John Wayne you know mm-hmm. like these were plum entertainment, straight entertainment that never asked you to ask any hard questions about right. the left and right. And this movie is entertaining, and it kind of asks you to ask hard questions about the left and right, because nothing that they're talking about isn't true. I also wanted to talk about Madeline Kahn, oh, who funny, I think is a lady. goddess. Yeah. <laughs> I love Madeline Kahn, mm-hmm. and I love the character she plays in this movie. Again, mm-hmm. she is a tool of the evil people in the movie and she's this prostitute and she has this hilarious song and dance number it's like uh, no matter what your job is even if you love it sooner or later you get sick of it right mm-hmm. and basically the whole thesis of her song is like guys I love you I love my job but I cannot fuck anybody right now I just I don't have it in me I am utterly shagged out <laughs> and it's a completely pleasing song and dance number in a saloon and it's supposedly this seductive you know bar room dance but, mm-hmm. but really what she's saying is I need a night off yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry I feel like I've been rolling over you no, no 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 you haven't no you haven't been rolling over me at all no Gene, Wild, no, Gene Wilder was very funny, too. He's also, I mean, for an outlaw in that, he was actually, in Cleveland Little and um, Jim, yeah. as yeah, as he calls himself. I mean, they were they were incredibly smart, witty characters. You wouldn't expect that from a, from an outlaw gunslinger or what was to be expected, the, the uh, Tolkien black person that they got just to basically, like, just... Yeah. I like the friendship that blooms between the two of them because mm-hmm. they're both low status. He's a washed up drunk that sleeps most of his nights in a jail cell. Mm-hmm. So no one gives a shit about him. No. And the backstory they give him it has a little bit of pathos. And it is much pathos as a movie as Blazing Saddles will allow. Right? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> he used to be this badass gunslinger and then he realized that people looked up to him and he was just creating more murderers by his very existence. Mm-hmm. And then he <laughs> and laid back and he got well. shot in the ass by a six-year-old kid. That's right. <laughs> Um, but I, I like that sort of this this warm friendship that, that you believe. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. like he's the one good white guy or that like they just they happen to be in a place where they had enough time enclosed together that they connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it might not have happened under different circumstances, but it's really good that it did. I just like the line. Like, so what is your pleasure? What can I help you with? I like chess. Screwing. But let's play chess. But let's play chess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Zinger lines. Yeah. 
Uh, I love uh, the ending of this movie. Um, like it's supposedly going to be this big climactic thing where they have a shootout to fend off the bandits and we're going to eventually see Harvey Corman arrested or you know the standard you know happy ending mm-hmm. it is completely abandoned oh, yeah. it is completely deliciously abandoned and all of a sudden the, the set breaks into like the other studio where they're filming a musical next there and then into mm-hmm. the next set and then into the next set and mm-hmm. like uh into the commons area and then the, the the camera just starts to pan out and starts mm-hmm. to pan out and you start to think are they gonna roll credits and then they roll credits mm-hmm. and you're just like wow there's no summation to it there's no like this is the point that we were trying to make there's no happy ending evil isn't punished good doesn't necessarily triumph the movie just kind of <laughs> well I mean they went to the they went to the, the movies to watch themselves in yeah, the movie yeah they went and watched to see how it turned yeah. out yeah no. uh, it kind of reminds me actually of Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> At the end, if they did that because they ran out of money in that movie, they, they were going to do this big sweeping action sequence, but instead the police show up and arrest everybody, and the movie <laughs> abruptly ends. I like that. I also like seeing um, other interesting faces. Uh, David Huddleston, who plays uh, one of the higher level people in the township, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. later re- died fairly recently, but he played the Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. the Big Lebowski, and it was kind of nice seeing him in a younger yeah. role there. Um, the character, I'm trying to find the name of the actor here. Uh, they the call guy? him Mongo. <laughs> oh, Alex Karras, yeah. Alex Karras. He used to play football. Yeah. Well, here's the thing I was sort of talking about with the Brick character in Anchorman, where it's like, this is uncomfortable, you know? They call him a mongoloid. This is like, again, in this day and age, people who are born with some sort of disability are not going to be treated with any measure of respect or empathy, mm-hmm. right? So... Could I choose to be offended by Mongo? I guess. Am I offended by Mongo? No. no. I think of him more as like the cartoon caveman character from a Bugs Bunny cartoon mm-hmm. and a function of the plot than as a serious sort of portrayal of mm-hmm. any kind of, uh, you know. If anything, I feel bad for the horse that he knocks out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just the comedy of it. And how he, yeah, he's a physical threat. So in the end of the day, I Blazing Saddles is a classic. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know what I can say about the movie to convince people to, if you haven't seen it to see it. Like, it's important for the subject matter that it tackles. It's significant that uh, you know it was a huge hit. It didn't necessarily stir up too much of a negative controversy like not for that time not not for that time like they say with anything like all in the family or that you couldn't be made today that's how there it's there yeah Yeah. but there are movies that i do agree wouldn't be made today right Mm -hmm. heathers wouldn't be made today or even blazing saddles in this form would not exist today i think then there'll be ways that they would do it that would be harsher and there would be ways they would do it to be softer but i love the frankness with which they handle the racism Mm -hmm. in this and I, I get the feeling that in this climate there would be a lot more hand-holding going on. Mm-hmm. The fact that it still has teeth, like 40 years later, big points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Strangelove. Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. General Rivers, huh? As an officer in Her Majesty's Air Force, 
It is my clear duty to issue the recall code and bring back the wing. You excuse me, Tom. He says that one of the planes hasn't turned back. He says, according to information forwarded by our air staff, it's headed for the missile complex at Laputa. So we've come all the way back to 1964. Yes. And Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Mm-hmm. There's lots to love about this movie, but I think that upon this viewing, the thing that I really respected about it is more so than any of the other movies that we talked about, this movie never asks for a laugh. But it gets it. It gets laughs yeah. left and right, but mm-hmm. it's never like, ah. Eh? <laughs> Come on, you guys. No. It never does the you know obvious broad uh, slapstick gimme comedy of Airplane. No. Or, or the in-your-face, isn't this uncomfortable comedy of Borat. No. It just lays out, in quote, facts in front of you, these story elements, and has you watch them. All of the characters, as far as their performances, even the really dramatically strange ones like Dr. Strangelove himself, are playing their characters authentically. Oh, of course, It's yeah. not funny because the characters are trying to be funny. It's funny because the characters are inherently flawed and funny. Mm-hmm. And it actually plays out shockingly plain-faced. Like, if you weren't paying close enough attention, if it was just on the background of a bar, you might think you were watching a legit Cold War movie. Right? <laughs> right? The genius of it is how the cards are played so close to the chest. And the absolutely preposterous high stakes that get set up by this scenario. Like, this is a one guy who's gone crazy. Right. <laughs> who's convinced that the communists are messing with our essential juices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and fluids, yeah. he, through his position of power, initiates a scenario where nuclear Armageddon is almost inevitable. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the system in place is such that that's the that's the only result. Well, it's either going to be us or them. Yeah. So then it becomes the preemptive strike. Well, we we inadvertently preemptively struck them. So if they saw that and they're striking, like maybe we should just go whole hog and instead of having one bomb drop, just level the fucking place. Yeah, right? they did the same. They did the same similar movie, except it was a serious movie. Same year, '64, Failsafe. Right. With Henry Fonda, the same. Same thing. Premise. And I still think, I mean, it's not a thriller, I would never call it that, but I think that the stakes in the movie actually kind of work to a degree. Mm-hmm. Peter Sellers, who memorably plays three different roles in the movie, the guy who's trying to reason with this this maverick, insane military gentleman, uh, he's in such an impossible situation. And, he and he's keeping this sort of polite British demeanor. Oh, yeah, 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 so I, I see what you're saying there. So. But don't you think that maybe not ending the world, you know? It, it, it's real to his character. Yeah, oh, yeah, it is. And he's almost, he's not even, he doesn't even seem like he's proper military. He almost seems like he's an office clerk worker who happens to fall into the military. He doesn't really have any yeah. training, especially when he's supposed to be holding the the shells or the gun yeah. that he's feeding. Yeah, he's uncomfortable with it, yeah. you can tell. But then you have the other side of the scenario here, the picture, which is represented by the George C. Scott character. 
full disclosure, I love George C. Scott. Yeah. I'm a huge George C. Scott fan. And it's hard for me not to think about Patton, actually, a little bit, watching back on this. There's a scene in Patton uh, where George C. Scott has this uh, moment of self-recognition where he's seeing this theater of war coming together and the battle about to take place. And he says to himself, God help me, I love this. Mm -hmm. Where he realizes that, like, people are going to die. He's put the pieces on the board for this scenario to take place. And instead of feeling anxiety about it, he's excited about it. Yeah. The character he plays in this movie is that to almost worse degree, but he has no self-awareness of it at all, <laughs> right? He is not able to self-examine. He is rah-rah America. If America does it, it's right. And if America wins, it's right. Mm -hmm. And anything to the left or right of that is not worth thinking about. Right, right. Apparently they shot two different... Because, like, I mean, Kubrick is notorious for, you know, 110 takes kind of yeah. thing. And they shot two different uh, types of version for George C. Scott, I mean, right. where he did it very straight, and then he did it over the top. But he did it as a very harsh military man. Yeah. And, then, and they, of course, went the comedic way, and apparently he didn't like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you'd ever heard that. Well, I, I didn't know that they they shot it two different ways. I, I do know that Kubrick's got a ridiculous representation reputation for tons and tons and tons of takes he mm -hmm. has to get it just so that said it still feels kind of restrained by kubrick measures it doesn't have as many of the long panning takes it doesn't take its time as much it's a 96 minute movie mm -hmm. um uh, it just it's presented frankly it feels almost like a docudrama but it's this hilarious satire right yeah um, I, I like that George C. Scott played it that big. I totally yeah, get yeah. how you could Leslie Nielsen it too and just go completely straight. But everybody was doing that to a certain degree. And it was just so refreshing to see George C. Scott, you know, let let the dogs out a little bit with his yeah. performance. Um, yeah, he is ridiculous and over the top, but he doesn't know that he's ridiculous and over the top. So his character remains credible no matter what insane advice comes out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be whispering wisdom into the president's ear about, you know, global war. Yes. And he is like horny to drop bombs. He just really wants to yeah, do 30, it. Yeah, 30, 40 million people tops. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Minimal, minimal. Even when it comes down to bomb shelters and repopulating the world, he's not really talking about it in any kind of real stakes way. No. This is the best way to maintain America mm -hmm. <laughs> at this point. Mm -hmm. Not the world. No. No. America. 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 Yeah. Uh, nice to see uh, Darth Vader himself, James Earl Jones. Mm -hmm. Very young in his career, but uh, got to be a good get to be on that set. Yeah. <laughs> right? I think that was his first film. Yeah. And uh, again, like, uh, he, not, he wasn't in any way a draw or particular standout at the time the movie came out but a no. welcome present i actually really like the entire crew of the bomber uh, mm -hmm. again realistically portrayed uh the real tragedy is when their their communication equipment gets shut down because they are just a bunch of guys doing exactly what they're supposed to do throughout right. this none of the things that they do is are necessarily according to the books wrong no which no, is what following, makes it terrifying they're, they're following protocol <laughs> they're following the protocol and their training says you do not question it you never question it no. you're specifically the guy in that seat because we know you will not question it right right <laughs> and that's whether the, the general has gone that's the, the that's the meticulous planning that will doom the world mm -hmm. <laughs> right right 
If some guy calls you and says, press that button, you press that button. You don't ask him when. You don't ask him why. It's like the Secret Service. You jump in front of the president. Yeah. You don't think. That's just... And that's... It's heroic to mm-hmm. in a certain degree, but it's also horrifying to think that because it's a human institution, it is full of human flaws. Mm-hmm. Mistakes will be made. Mm-hmm. You know? Most places, if a mistake's made in the office, you know, an order doesn't get filled or a, a customer has to wait longer than they would like to. Mm-hmm. In these stakes, a bomb gets dropped on a city. And people die. <laughs> and war starts. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, uh, how it handles the comedy is really interesting. Like I said, uh, it, it. I think it was Rob Reiner talking about uh, The Princess Bride. The tone of The Princess Bride was they were tipping their hands, but not quite enough for you to see it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one's sort of the opposite. Like, they're almost trying to hide the fact in presentation that this is a comedy. And that's what kind of brings the comedy to life while maintaining the stakes. And they had just gone through kind of a Cold War. They almost went to World War Three with uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy, too, back in the day. Absolutely. The old Bay of Pigs. And this was just a couple of years later. So... Oh, it was a reflection of the paranoia of the time. And I mm-hmm. think that at the time it came out, that actually might have hurt the yayas of the movie. Mm-hmm. It would be harder to laugh at then than it maybe is now. It would be horrifying because you would have lived through it. I mean, kids in the 50s had to... Bomb drills in school. Bomb drills, yeah. Yeah, hide, hide under your desk and that mm-hmm. will stop you from dying when the temperature is raised by several thousand degrees. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. But... Wear your helmet when you skydive. The yeah, not gonna do absolutely. Anything. Your yeah. seat is a flotation device, so survive the explosion in the fall. <laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. you'll have something to hold on to. Yeah. But no, uh, it's the illusion of safety. And I think what Dr. Strangelove is positing is that the military... And government as an apparatus, as we understand it, mm-hmm. is your flotation device as a seat. It is the illusion of safety. Right. And that is a frankly terrifying thing. Yeah. So terrifying that I'm grateful to laugh because it becomes laugh or cry yeah, <laughs> at right, a certain right. point, right? And at that point, I will choose to laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, even and even with wordplay in there, I mean, you were talking about wordplay before with um, like airplane and, and other films. I mean, some of the wordplay in there, like you know, there's no fighting in here, gentlemen. This is the war room. You can't fight in here. It's the war room. When they when they start storming that general's office and that, and they you know, his people are you know shooting the military that's coming, the incoming military that's coming because they think it's actually the Russians coming, yeah. in, and it's not. It's their own people. They're and I see fired. these billboards all over the place. Peace is our profession. Yeah. Meanwhile, is. War they're killing between, themselves. They're killing themselves, yeah. Yeah. And then that whole bit with that military guy that actually gets in there, and he's talking to Mandrake, polite little Mandrake. <laughs> and he says, you know, I have to make a phone call. They're trying to find this dime desperately. They're trying, they have to make this phone call to the White House, to the president. Go shoot that, go shoot that soda machine. I can't do that. Oh, yeah, because I'm, I'm not going to answer the Coca-Cola company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just destroy things because you asked me to. Yeah. I can kill people, but heaven forbid, I don't want to answer the Coca-Cola company. I also respect the movie's commitment to character as in people are who they are at the end of the day and there's nothing that you can do to change that. I think that's best illustrated by Dr. Strangelove himself. It's an infamous but factual thing that a lot of high-ranking Nazi scientists were basically selected to become 
basically uh, you know high-ranking members of the American infrastructure you know mm. uh, help them make bombs for the other side it's mm-hmm. either that or a cell right so it's a cartoon character but it's based on a real idea and the fact that Strangelove almost he can't resist calling the president mein Führer and his arm almost like independently of him does mm-hmm. a Nazi salute well, it's hilarious but it's also kind of a comment is that a person is who it is he might be a genius scientist, but he's also a fucking Nazi. Mm-hmm. And you probably don't want to be associating yourself with Nazis. You don't want him in there, no. <laughs> uh, uh, George C. Scott, again, at the end of the day, whether he could admit it to himself, he wants war. It's what he was built for. So mm-hmm. any scenario that will facilitate that is what he's going to push forward. And it's not that he would think of himself as a villain or as an evil person. That's fundamentally who he is. His driving force mm-hmm. is, I'm here to fight. Give me someone to fight. Right. Yep. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. And I think the big thing that we're missing, really, that we're not talking about are the three performances of Peter Sellers. Yeah. Which is the second time he's done that. In the yeah. Films. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he plays the president so straight and... Almost not a comedic role, the president. No, no. And not at all. It's more him dealing with the lunacy of the people around him Mm -hmm. and his reaction to that and him trying to deal with the drunk Russian on the other side. Well, that's the the funny, that's where the funny part is. I mean, when he's dealing with, you know, Dimitri, Dimitri. We've kind of had a little oopsie. (laughs) You know, he went a little funny in the head. (laughs) Just like sugarcoating it doesn't say it at all. Mm We may have inadvertently triggered war, so... Well, I'm, just cool. as, I'm just as sorry as you, Dimitri. Don't say you're more sorry than me. I'm just as sorry as Don't you. Don't think that I'm happy about this. Yeah. But, yeah. Again, it almost becomes a polite comedy of manners at that point. Right. Like, these are two people that are, you know, throwing <laughs> nuclear weapons at each other, but they're talking to each other like, well, you know... Oopsie. we got to make a deal here. Mm-hmm. The Jerry Lundegaard from Fargo. Well, geez, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> oh heck yeah. <laughs> no, but you're the president of the United States, you know. Mm-hmm. You this is a pretty big deal. you got you got to break through that drunk and make him understand <laughs> they need to shoot down that plane. Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, the, by, by doing everything right in the plane and by being able to evade being shot down and being perfect soldiers, they undo the world. Yeah. Riding down on a uh, <laughs> nuclear missile as a way to go out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be fun. I guess it would be terrifying. I don't think you would feel anything, but... Uh, well, I don't think you would, but he is just he I, was an old rodeo boy. I think a case could be made if you were like making a list of like top 10 most memorable cinematic deaths period that might have to be mentioned that always that always seems to pop up in those lists that they you know AFI was having those lists and the swinging the cowboy hat yeah. he's falling back on the bottom. it's it's a pretty it's an impressive image and idea mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. uh it's a classic movie. Again, reviewer proof. Uh, there's a handful of people who would make the argument that it's an overrated comedy. I think that's because of the straightness with which the comedy is handled. I think that, you know, if someone didn't know their history and wasn't paying close enough attention, they might have thought it was a drama with a few funny lines. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that. I think that it's absolutely biting satire. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan. Right, right. I'm a very huge fan of this film as well. And yeah. I love Sellers' performances in it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always respected him as a talent. We talk about movies that don't age well. Like, as a kid, I loved The Party. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? There's a movie that would not be made today. No, no. Right? That's that the list. Mm-hmm. I really liked it, though. No, it was a great movie. Great movie, but no, given no. Thank you so much for being well, here. Thank you for having me. Malcolm's been suffering through some some cramping in his leg, the poor man, while we've been doing this. Yeah, I had a pulled hamstring or something, <laughs> or a tightened hamstring. You fought through it. We made it. We're at the ranks. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming back to Rank and Review. It's been almost exactly a year since you've been on. That's right. And we'll have to do this more often. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fascinated to hear what was your least favorite of the strong bunch of movies, really. What was your least favorite of this group of six? I, I would have to go with... Um, Probably Borat. I would have to go with Borat. Would be number six on that, just for the fact that, I mean, I, I mean, all all six. I liked all all of the films. I did like all the films, but Borat just um, to me maybe it was something that you said before. I mean, it didn't change my mind. I mean, it. I mean, I already had my rank in my head, but I mean, I think with Borat, it just it just seemed like maybe maybe the maybe too much of the biting of. Uh, I like the candid camera style action of it, but. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure how to word this. Um, There's a percentage of uncomfortable. Maybe it. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe that would be it. Maybe it was a bit uncomfortable, or maybe it was too. Maybe the scene of the Kazakhstan and how stereotypical that would be a very poorish country. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's. Maybe that's where it would fall. I mean, I like Sasha Baron Cohen, obviously, but maybe that's where it would, why it would fall in there. Right. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Number five, I would go with Office Space, um, just strictly for that. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Ron Livingston. I get what he was doing in there, and he was kind of the anchor of the film. Um, it just, I mean, it just happens to be number five in a good list of films. It's tough competition. It is. A, it is a tough competition. Yeah. So I mean, that would be my least. I get the whole Office. You know, looking at your watch on a Monday morning, oh, it's yeah. ten thirty, and you think, "Okay, I've only got thirty-seven and a half more hours <laughs> left to go in this week." I get that, but I would say that would be my number five. Fair enough. Number four, um, Anchorman, and these. This is where the films kind of get actually get really tougher. Tougher. I mean, it, well, they get a lot better. Um, and like I said, number four is just it's just in a it's it's in a tough group of, of films. But I would go Anchorman number four. I mean, I I mean Will Ferrell did it really well as a straight uh, news anchor in a very chauvinistic 1970s world. They all played the characters very well. Even um, you know Christine Applegate kind of came through in that you you know woman's movement that occurred in the 70s, and she was showing up stronger and stronger. Cameos, uh, I mean they're okay here and there, but I mean all the performances, the four male leads, and Christine Applegate. Were wonderful, yeah. Uh, number three, I go with airplane. Like I said before, I mean, there's a laugh every second. <laughs> there is. I mean, there's or every scene, every not every second, every scene. There's a laugh. Um, and I mean, I appreciate the older television actors playing it straight, 
Robert Hayes sort of played it straight. He had sort of a farcical bit, you know, like the whole drinking problem thing. Right. right? Um, but I mean, I mean, this kind of sent Leslie Nielsen. I mean, he he played it straight better than anyone. Yeah. You know. So I mean, that would be my number. That'd be my number three. Number two, uh, the film we just talked about, uh, Doctor Strange Love, or How I Love, or How I Stopped Learning Learn to Love the Bomb. Um, that's on any of these other lists that you have. That would be a number one. Um, but yeah, that's number that makes number two for me. Just happenstance. That's all it is. And number one would be Blazing Saddles, just because it's Mel Brooks, so brilliant, so um, it is so biting, and it just it, it's. It's so somewhat ahead of its time, and it's it's not. I think Mel Brooks is kind of pointing the finger at people that are racism. People might have seen this and think, "Well, Mel Brooks, you're a really you're a really hateful person." That's not the case at all. It's not not at all. We're not laughing with the slave owners at all. No, no, we're not. No, mm. we're laughing. Yeah, no, we're not. Um, we're not laughing at all, is what I mean. Um, but I mean, Blazing Saddles would be my. Number one, I mean, again, that's it's just it's just a brilliant film. Uh, that's a really good list. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the difficulty of having a, a strong list as this <laughs> is that, uh, like they don't fall into place easy. There are some lists where it just seems to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. All of these seem to be difficult. I, I think we'll have to confirm this. If not for Borat being at the bottom, we might have gone zero for six here, but uh, let's let's figure it out. Okay. Um, so in in sixth place, yes, I agree with you, Borat. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the approach, but I can't lie that I did have a great theatrical experience, laughing at, a lot, mm -hmm. like to the point where like my sides hurt a little bit. Like I laughed yeah. a lot, and again, being in a room full of hundreds of other people laughing makes it very contagious and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, the echo of the laughter. But afterwards, I had to think about my laughter. Mm -hmm. And some people would say, is that a good thing? Like you laughed and then you thought maybe that's a good thing. But it was like, should I be laughing? Was that okay? And again, I'm kind of impressed that, that they managed to push my buttons. But uh, I had to put something at the bottom. And I guess I had enough reservations that it made it to the bottom. Would I tell somebody to not watch Borat? No, I would not. I would yeah. say absolutely watch Borat. Some of it might rub you the wrong way, but you'll laugh. Right. So there it is. This is where you're going to get mad, though. No. All the way in fifth place, I'm putting Airplane. Oh, okay. Uh, here's the thing. Out of all of the movies that we're talking about, I think it's the softest target as far as the satire. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems unkind to call it dumb. But the comedy is, is kind of obvious, overt. Like I say, wordplay, slapstick, man fall down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Stereotypes, oh, so, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it, I, again, I, I love the movie. I like the fact that it's in fifth place. Doesn't really sit super well with me, but like the, um, that's how I'm justifying it. Is just uh, it's a goofier, lighter comedy. It doesn't quite have the intelligence behind it. But sometimes this is exactly the movie you want. Sometimes you don't want to be challenged. <laughs> you don't want to be. You just want to laugh. And if you just want to laugh, that's the movie. That is the movie <laughs> for you. So. In fourth place, and I know that there's a couple people who are listening to this show who are going to say, you maniac, mm -hmm. I am putting Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy. Scott Lehman, I apologize, because <laughs> my friend Scott just yelled at the podcast. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I love I love where the heart of the movie's at. I do think it's a fundamentally funny movie. Um, I think you know making fun of the social norms of the seventies is you know a very ripe top topic for satire. Right. Uh, again, it's a little bit broader and arguably maybe less less intelligence and less teeth than some of the other movies that we've talked about here. Mm-hmm. But hard hard to not like Anchorman. Right. So making it controversially all the way to third place. We have office space. Uh, I think maybe it, I benefited from the amount of time I actually have spent in a cubicle. I think maybe the more time you've spent in that environment, the more you'll connect to this movie. Sure. But whether or not you've worked in a cubicle or lived in that environment, I think almost everybody has had a job that they hated and had to deal with this nauseating infrastructure of management right. who are just casually awful to you. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're able to make me laugh at that and take comfort from it I think is valuable right. of course, <laughs> for yeah. me. So uh, it made it surprisingly all the way to third place. I think that's the biggest surprise for me for my list because if before, like I, I like to make the list before I watch the movies mm-hmm. and then after, like after watching them, put them in that order. And I imagined Anchorman outranking Office Space when I sat down to do this originally. And upon revisiting them, I really connected to that dark dark underbelly in office space right. one and two yeah that's hard <laughs> so tough I, I guess I didn't find it tough though yeah to me. I put I put Blazing Saddles in second place uh, like but it, it was it's a narrow coin toss mm-hmm. of a thing you know yeah. um, and I guess it's just there are the few things that, that were edgy at the time that aren't anymore that, that kind of you know just sort of sit there like I talked about the cowboys farting scene that mm-hmm. was not particularly funny, you know. Yeah. Um, some of the more obvious cutaway jokes, the gallows humor of the guy hanging both the cowboy and his horse for some reason and stuff like that. There's an overt silliness that are kind of the obvious things that are more of its day. And when Blazing Saddles is at its best is when it's breaking the rules instead of repeating old ones, right? Right. Uh, and like I say, that third act almost gave it first place. <laughs> like, I'm usually the guy who's really anal about story structure and stuff like that. But I love that the movie just abandons itself in the mm-hmm. third act. Right. I don't know why. I think that's so fucking funny, but mm-hmm. I think that's hilarious. But I, again, boring film school. <laughs> so I... I have to give it to Kubrick for number one for Dr. Strangelove just because of the scale of the darkness of the subject matter that they're dealing with. Well, nuclear war, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The fact that they did successfully make me laugh. I don't know if I maybe took as much comfort from it, (laughs) but I don't think they're asking you to. I think they're taking a pretty hard look at the powers that be and how real it is Mm -hmm. as a system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's asking some pretty big, pretty tough questions. But they're not rubbing your nose in it. They're still being very entertaining. Yeah. And that Peter Sellers triple performance, I mean, well, that ha- could, that, hard to beat. Hard right, to beat. Right, and that could have happened back in the day, too. That was, I mean, pretty, a pretty scary situation to be oh, in. Oh, yeah. yeah. It wasn't far-fetched, and no. it isn't far-fetched. Well, that's still, no, not today. No. Not at all. Not no. at all. Uh, so, uh, in Laugh or Cry, like, again, I'm going to choose laughter. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, especially the top two, Malcolm. Just Blazing Saddles and Doctor Strange Love. That's 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 tough. If we had done this on a Tuesday, it might be a different. Yeah. Exactly. 
But mm-hmm. so as much as we've largely disagreed on the rank, I don't think we really disagree that much. No, not much. I think the mo- biggest difference probably obviously is, is office space. Yeah. And uh, you would certainly say that I ranked Airplane too low. But again, I would recommend all six of these movies. Yes, I would too. I would, I would too. Thank Where you so much, man. Well, thank you, Larry. Thank you. Sorry <laughs> Take about care the of your leg. <laughs> no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's a spasm. So. And I hope your phone dries nicely in its bag of rice. I hope so, too. Yeah, my phone <laughs> fell in the tub today, people. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Take care, brother. Bye-bye. guys this show's not always about you know people getting their throats cut you know <laughs> tragedies darkness monstrosities no 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 sometimes we can talk about funny lighter subjects i hope you enjoyed satire and i hope you continue listening to rank and review uh we're going to be talking about martin scorsese in the next episode so we're still straying further yet off the path of the genre but uh we'll get back to the horror i promise it'll happen uh if you have feedback for me for this episode or any episode of rank and review you can send it to rank and review at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com the website is rankandreview.ca and if you enjoy Rank and Review, I bet you you'll like the Terror Table Podcast. So do check out the Terror Table Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. You show impeccable taste in podcasts. Please do uh, spread the word on the show and continue listening. Until next time, I'm your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. Be well. Be well.